You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? I'll take it. I see some people in here that I've never seen before. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. I see some people I haven't seen in a while. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. And everyone else that comes here regularly, whatever. Um, <laughs> seriously, i got to say this about Stephen. Uh, I love him. Like, seriously, I really love that guy. And you guys, some of you don't know him that well. He, he genuinely loves, loves this church, loves the people in it, talks to me all the time about, you know, how can I be serving these people better? What should I be doing? Um, he really loves you guys a lot. And he is just so cute. Anyways, but ladies, back off. I don't know if Keely's here or not. She is, and she is mean, and she is quite fond of Steven, so like she'll go Jerry Springer on someone in a heartbeat, right? She's got that Soda County in her. Anyway, um, so we are continuing through our series called Bible Stories, Christ in the Old Testament. And what we're doing, if you're new um, or if you've forgotten, is we're seeing how the Old Testament points to and foreshadows Jesus and ultimately what he would do for God's people. Right? So like Jesus is the better Abel. Jesus is the better Noah. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the better everyone. Everyone in the Old Testament foreshadows and points to Jesus. Jesus himself says that. The author of Hebrews says that. Um, and just a side note, I was super nervous for this series. I, like I might add, like any of you who know me very well, like I was just sweating bullets having to preach from the Old Testament. I'm terrified. And this has been like a fantastic learning experience for me. I really hope that you guys are enjoying this as much as me. And if you're not... I have a microphone, and you don't, so I don't care. Um, but like, it, it's been fantastic, uh, especially this. I thought that this week was going to be one of the hardest ones that I had. Um, we're going to get into that in a minute. Um, but it, it's, it's not. It was actually really fun to learn. Um, so, so far, in the last couple of weeks, we've covered the creation of the world um, and the subsequent fall of mankind into sin, where man rebels against God. Adam and Eve eat the fruit that God told them not to, and all these bad things happen. Um, Sin enters into the world, and we're all guilty in Adam, but through faith in Christ, we become in Christ, and we're all pardoned for our guilt. Um, But tonight, we're going to see one of the first fruits of the fall of mankind, and that is death, Um, physical death, not not just spiritual death in hell for eternity, but literal death. We, We actually weren't made to die. But death is a result of sin. But it's not just any death that we're going to look at. Um, It's murder. If you guys are familiar with the account of Cain and Abel, where Cain murders his younger brother Abel. That's what we're going to be looking at this evening. And in doing this, we're going to be considering the fact that the world can be classified into two groups, according to the Bible. Um, The children of God and the children of Satan. Uh, there's really, no matter what religion you are or what race you are or what nationality, there are really only these two groups as far as Scripture is concerned. There are those who are in Adam, right? These, these children of Satan, children of the devil, in Adam, meaning still in their sins, opposed to God, have not been born again. And then there are those who are in Christ, those who have been born again of the Holy Spirit, those who have repented and believed in Christ. Um, and that's a very unpopular thought in our very pluralistic, relativistic culture, um, that things would be so black and white, that it's just one or the other. But the Bible teaches two groups of people. And what I want us to look at this evening is the relationship that exists between those two groups. And in doing that, see how the people of God, or the children of God, are to respond 
um, how, how they're to respond to the people of Satan and what they do to them and towards God. Um, and then we're also going to see how Abel, this is beautiful, how Abel and his martyrdom ultimately point to the ultimate martyr of Jesus Christ. So, without any more by way of introduction, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Um, if you're new here, there are blue Bibles in the backs of those pews. Take one home with you. That's our gift to you. Take it. You're not stealing. It's a really easy translation. Uh, but it's also going to be here on the projector if you're lazy like me. Um, so Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. Surprise. And she became pregnant. When she, uh, when she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Just Sorry, no, I can't help it. I wasn't going to say this. The other translations, like the King James and ESV, Eve says, um, with the Lord's help, I have gotten a man. And I always think of like women at weddings whenever I read that. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's funny. Anyway, whatever, I'm a comedian. I don't care what anyone says. I am hilarious. Um, so when she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. And when they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, Let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, Where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Cain replied to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord replied, No, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, please do, do a work this evening. Speak truth through me. Anything that I say, if it's just my opinion and it's not biblically sound, God, let it fall on deaf ears because that's garbage if it's not from you. God, soften our hearts and allow us to receive this truth Regenerate someone. Call someone that doesn't know you to be born again um, to a living hope, to faith in Christ. And God, those of us who are already trusting in Jesus, God, soften us so that we can receive your word and be broken for our sin, but be encouraged by who you are. Please do a sovereign act of grace. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so I like to recap the stories if you're like me. You know, having someone read it to me doesn't really work out too well. So let's recap. All right, so there's two sons born to Eve, Cain and Abel. Cain grows up to be a farmer. Abel grows up to be a shepherd. Um, 
And then eventually one day both sons come and they bring an offering to God. And Abel gives the best of his flock. Right? Like the fat portions of his firstborn. This is the best of the best that Abel has. And Hebrews 11.4. Hebrews, just so you know, if you ever read the New Testament and you want to see some references to the Old Testament, you can read the Gospel of Matthew, which is full of them. Or you can read Hebrews, which is a huge, has like swaths of the Old Testament and how like it all points to Jesus. It's beautiful. You should read Hebrews. You should read the Bible anyway, but Hebrews is really cool. Um, and Hebrews 11.4 tells us that Abel gave by faith. Right, that Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God because Abel gave by faith. So again, he gives the best that he has, gives by faith, God accepts it. Cain gives, what we just read, our translation, some fruit. Right? It's not necessarily told to be the best. It's probably not the best of Cain's crops. Um, and I would argue this from, from Hebrews where it says, Abel's gift was accepted because he gave by faith. Then I would argue Cain's gift was rejected and Cain was rejected because he did not give by faith. Make sense? If one's true, then I would imagine the opposite is true as well. Um, I think Cain probably gave out of obligation, right? Or gave out of, this is what's expected of Cain, right? This is just a little side, side note, I, rabbit trail I want to go down. Abel gave because he loved the Lord, because he had genuine faith in the God who made him and wanted to please him. Abel probably, like how a lot of people go to church. I go to church because this is what my parents expect me, right? Adam and Eve are just telling me this is what i got to do. They say this is the God that I'm supposed to love. I'll just bring some crops to him because they're making me, right? I would imagine that that's probably Cain's heart disposition, right? Again, just how a lot of people come to church or, you know, give money or they're, they try to be moral just because this is what is expected of them. But again, God accepted Abel and his gift but rejected Cain because Cain did not give by faith. Right? And I grew up thinking that it was because of Cain's gift, like as Cain gave like a cruddier gift than Abel. That's not the case. It's because Cain did not give by faith. So Abel loved God, and Cain did not. And God knows their hearts, right? Uh, he's the heart knower, according to the book of Acts. God knows their hearts, so God accepts Abel, rejects Cain. And what was really funny whenever I was studying this, Cain gets angry. But the Bible doesn't explicitly say who, but I think from the context, the Bible would teach us that Cain gets angry at God. Right? He's not necessarily angry with his brother. It's not really a jealousy issue towards Abel. Cain gets angry with God because God rejects him. Um, God rejects his sacrifice. And what was funny is God goes to Cain and then calls Cain to repentance. And it doesn't really look like repentance on its face. But he says, if you do what is right, you will be accepted. Cain, you didn't give in faith. If you will put your faith in me, will I not accept you? Right? God is calling Cain to repentance. So he says, okay, on the one hand, you can repent and do what is right, and I'll accept you. Or if you won't do what is right, if you won't repent, if you want to stay faithless, then you will be mastered by sin and its penalty. So he lays out both. He lays out blessing and curse to Cain, just like he does Adam and Eve, right? Do this and live, disobey and die. If you do what is right, if you repent, I'll accept you. But Cain just spits all over that offer, does he not? Instead of repenting, Cain murders his brother. Now, why would Cain murder his brother? Cain kills Abel to spite God. Right? Cain hates God. Cain is hostile against God. He is angry with God. He does not want God. He does not want to please God. So he kills his brother, the one whom God put his favor on. And then God questions Cain and, uh, about Abel, and Cain refuses to, his, to admit his guilt. Where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Again, he won't admit his guilt, which means he won't repent. 
Because in order to repent, we must first admit our guilt. And then God curses Cain. He sends him away from, from his presence. And again, we see Cain doesn't care to repent. He doesn't care about the fact that God is angry with him. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. I fear that men might kill me instead of, I fear the fact that God is displeased with me and his wrath abides on me. Cain is just, I'm wanting to paint this picture of Cain. I don't know if you can see it or not. He's a stone-hearted sinner who wants nothing to do with God whatsoever, unlike his brother Abel. So Abel ultimately was martyred. Right? He was ultimately martyred because of his love for God, because of his faith in God. He was murdered by the ungodly Cain who hated God. The reason why I kind of wanted to, to, to tease that out for a minute is because I see a concept in this passage that's repeated throughout the Bible. And again, I talked about it in the intro. It's the children of God and the children of Satan. All right? and, and this whole idea... It's really, this is cool. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we looked at last week, where God, he's cursing the serpent, and he says, and I will cause hostility, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Right? So we see this, again, this concept, the people of God being the offspring of Eve, these children of this promise that evil will eventually be conquered, and then the offspring of Satan, the serpent's offspring. Um, and I think I would, I would define them these ways, and we've got a couple of things up here. The children of God are those who are repentant. Again, these aren't sinless people. These aren't people who are by nature or by birth good. These are people who are repentant over their sin, who love God, who trust in God, who desire God. We'll put Abel in this category. The children of God are the offspring of Eve. And then the children of Satan are the unrepentant. Again, they're both sinners, but unrepentant. They're hostile against God. They desire anything but God. And ultimately, they want to do what they want to do. And we're going to put Cain in that category. And from what God says to the serpent, he says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman. It tells me that these two families, right? I'm going to be using this word. I know it sounds kind of corny, but it's the simplest way that I can say it. God's family and Satan's family. These two families are naturally set apart. They're naturally set against one another. But it's not a physical birth that separates these two families. It's not a physical lineage. right? Again, bear in mind, Cain and Abel were of the same physical family. Adam and Eve were, were their parents. So it's not a physical birth that separates the two. Now the Bible teaches that all of us, we are all naturally born into Satan's family. We're all naturally hostile to God. We are all by birth in our natural spirit, in our natural demeanor. We are enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 2 says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us, Paul's writing to Christians, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. But our very, or by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. In Romans 8, 7, For the sinful nature, this nature you're born to, is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. So we're all born like this. We're all born into Satan's family, not wanting anything to do with God. Our, our natural disposition is to hate him. This is why Jesus says, this is so important, this is why Jesus says in John 3 that you must be born again. 
Quite literally, you must be put into a new family that's separate from the one that you were born into. In Ephesians, Paul goes on to say in in chapter 1 that we were adopted, those of us who are Christians, we were adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ. So this new birth, bear this in mind because this will come back later, this new birth is an act of God. God must change us. This is something that you can't do for yourself. God must change your nature. You can't change your heart. Just like you can't change what kind of foods you like. You can't change what's naturally pleasing to you. God must do it. God must give us hearts that desire him. He has to give us a new nature to override our natural one. He must put us into a new family. This is what God did for Abel. Right? God gave Abel a new heart. Because again, Abel was born a sinner. He's a child after the fall of mankind. He gave Abel a new heart that loved God and desired to be at peace with God. This is why Abel gave by faith. God had put him into his own family by grace. So here's this distinction. So though Cain and Abel were born into the same spiritual and physical family, a distinction between the two came about because of faith that God had wrought in the heart of Abel. A distinction arises, and the problems begin, do they not? There is enmity between the two. Again, calling back to Genesis 3.15. There's enmity between the, the, the children of Satan and the children of God. This is why Cain killed Abel. Right? Cain was of the devil's family. Verse 5 tells us he was angry with God. And Abel was of God's family. He loved God. And I'll just throw this out to you. Cain knows he can't attack God Almighty directly. That would be foolish and impossible. But he can attack God's children. Can he not? Abel's right there. Abel's a man just like Cain. Cain knows I can't hurt God, but I can hurt God's people. So Cain's murder, and this is what was huge for me, Cain's murder of Abel wasn't necessarily a personal attack against Abel. Again, we'll miss this if we just read over it and just gloss over this, ver- or this, this chapter and not think about it. Right? It wasn't that Cain killed Abel because he was super jealous over Abel. Right? Cain could care less whether or not God like, accepted Abel. Right? He, he doesn't want God. Right? He, he hates Abel primarily because this is the expression of Cain's hostility towards God himself. Remember this. This is going to come back in, into play later. Cain's murder of Abel and hatred of him was the expression of Cain's hostility towards God. So Abel was persecuted unto death by Cain because Satan's family hates God's family. Now the fact that the fact that Abel was the first martyr, right? We don't think about that. Think, consider that for a minute. Abel was the first human death in the Bible, and he is a martyr. <laughs> Tell me that's not a foreshadowing of Jesus, right? First human death and a martyr. But the fact that he was martyred and persecuted by Cain because of his love for God made me think um, through some conversations that I had with some people this week um, and talking to my wife. It made me start thinking about 21st century persecution of Christianity, Um, right? Because the Bible is not only just an old book, but we want to show you guys how this is the most relevant book ever, right? It still today has a lot to tell us. Um, We can learn from Abel. In his, pers- in his being persecuted because Abel points to Jesus. But again, 21st century persecution, right? We hear about ISIS, 
right? These are the things that we think of immediately. You think of persecution now. We think of ISIS, um, you know, cutting the heads off of Christians. We think of murders going on in the Middle East, uh, terror attacks against Christian schools and Christians, uh, some that have happened here. Um, we know about the killing of Christians in Asian countries like North Korea and China. Um, if you're part of the underground church in China, that, that doesn't bode well for you. Um, we can see today the enmity between the two families, can we not? It's something that uh, happened in the beginning. And just a side note, if you don't do this, I would encourage you, pray for our family. Pray for your brothers and sisters if you're a Christian who are being murdered for the gospel in other countries. Don't forget about them. Even though they're far away, they are just as much your family as we are here. Um, But again, we can see this enmity between the two families today. So when we think about persecution, we tend to to think about those kinds of things, right? Like the very extreme things, like jail, uh, like being jailed, being beaten, um, being murdered because of your faith in Jesus. And those things are for certain the extreme and ultimate forms of persecution. And I'm not taking away from that whatsoever. Don't mistake me. Um, But I do think that persecution is much broader than that. I don't think it's just those kinds of things. Um, And I, I... I, I don't think it's, I think it's broader than that because I think Jesus gives us a broader definition. Jesus Christ tells us, and we're going to read it later, that people are going to mock us and revile us and, and, and speak false things about us. Like they're going to slander us and lie about us. They're going to harm us. He says, they are going to hate you because you do not belong to the world, but I have called you out of the world. They hate me, so they're going to hate you as well. And, then, and not only that, but he tells us things that, that we're going to have to deal uh, from time to time with our families ostracizing us. Our, our own families, our own flesh and blood belittling us, uh, pushing us out of the home, um, having nothing to do with us, mocking us. The society is going to ostracize us um, and belittle us. Again, call us foolish, those kinds of things. I think persecution is that broad. All right, not just death. Um, and jailing and beating, but I think it's those things too, and I think that because of Jesus Christ's own words. Um, so here's how I would define persecution. It's just, if you take notes, whatever. Persecution, I, I think, is this, biblically. Anything that we suffer that comes as a result of our faith in Christ, not just anything we suffer, but anything we suffer that comes as a result of our faith in Christ, whether directly or indirectly, in this pain, these things we suffer, are going to come from those who belong to the devil. I understand some of you guys think I'm being extreme here. I'm not. Right? This, is, this is scripture. So, don't, don't get me wrong. I know what some of you, maybe you're thinking, that I'm going to start fear-mongering. <laughs> right? Anyone else, like, you can't stand that? Like, whenever Christians start talking about persecution, you know they're trying to scare everybody really bad. Like, I hate fear-mongering. That's why I hate politicians. Not as individuals, but just the concept of politicians. Because we have to love everybody, but whatever. Um, come on, that was a joke. Come on, give me some slack here. I hate fear-mongering, and that is not my intention with what we're getting ready to talk about for just a few minutes. Um, but we really need to, as the church in the West, right? we really need to consider um, how to think about and deal with persecution. right? Like This is a really healthy thing for us to begin to consider because... Um, contrary to what a lot of Republicans like to tell us, and no offense to the Republican Party in here, um, I'm a registered Republican, we live in a post-Christian society. Christendom is, is, if it's not dead already, Christendom is dying. 
Right? And in the words of Matt Chandler, I, I kind of thank God for that because I think the church is going to become more pure whenever it begins to cost us something to call ourselves Christians. Right? But we live in a post-Christian society. And what I mean by that is, is it's no longer, it no longer, you, you don't gain anything anymore from saying you're a Christian. In, in some pockets of the U- U.S., mainly in like the South and things like that, like maybe you can still get some like, co- like societal clout behind you by saying you're a Christian. But by and large, that is gone, right? Even in like borderline Bible Belt, White Trash, Soda County, like that's still, like that doesn't fly here. Like you can still catch all kinds of flack for calling yourself a Christian if you really mean it, um, even around here. But again, we live in a post-Christian society. You don't gain anything from the culture anymore by saying you're a Christian. And we've lived, for about the last 300 years or so, we have lived in peace. We've lived in a ridiculous amount of peace, where the majority of people identify themselves as Christian. But now our culture is shifting rapidly. Right? Like in the last like 40 or 50 years, and especially in the last 10 to 15 years, um, our culture is shifting like at the speed of light, it seems like, in the other way, opposed to Christian morality, opposed to Christian values, and opposed to the God of the Bible. So persecution is coming. That's the next step. At first, it's unfashionable to be a Christian, and then it's got some social stigma to it. And then legitimate persecution is usually what comes next, if you look at history. It's coming, and in many ways, it's already here. Again, legal action take, taken against our First Amendment rights um, and again, I'm not up here to talk politics, um, but legal action, political action, um, society, again, ostracizing us, family. It's all opposition. So again, in some ways, it's already here, but it probably isn't going to get any better. I'm not saying that God can't do a sovereign work of grace, and we might see the third great awakening, which is something that I pray for. That would be awesome to see, but it's probably not going to happen if we're going to be honest with ourselves. Again, post-Christian society. Now, this is relevant for us, especially here at Revolution. And the reason why I want to take a minute and, and talk about the, the post-Christian society idea is I know, I talked to last week at least two different people in this church. I know that there are people in this church who have tasted this, who have tasted persecution from family, from the people that they work with, from people they go to school with, from their professors, from their spouses even who aren't believers. I also know of other people in this church who live in fear. Like, let's just be honest with ourselves. I know people who live in fear of what is coming on the church in the future. So we really need to think this thing through biblically. We need to think about persecution. So I got like four points. Um, I'm, not, I'm not gonna dwell on them for forever. Um, about how we should be thinking about persecution. Uh, one, <laughs> this is cool. Um, we don't think about it enough. We should not be surprised. <laughs> We should not be surprised by hostility from the world. Call me crazy. We're warned about it all over the New Testament. We're warned about it that we will be hated. Jesus' own words. The world will hate you because you belong to me. Jesus gives us a heads up. He's not sending us into the dark here. He says, I'm sending you out as like sheep amongst wolves. Right? And not only that, not only does Jesus say this, but I think Peter says, and it's funny um, how blunt Peter is. He says it too in 1 Peter 4.12. He says, Dear friends... Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. He's saying whenever you're mocked and reviled or you lose your job or your family can't stand you or God forbid you're jailed, beaten, or murdered for your faith in Jesus, this is normal. 
If he says, don't be surprised and don't consider it something strange, then that means that whenever we go through times of peace where these things aren't happening, we should begin to think, man, this is strange that no one hates me. This is strange that I'm not suffering anything for Jesus because Peter is telling us this is normal. The opposition towards God's people goes back to the beginning. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between your offspring and the serpents, or between your offspring and Eve's offspring. Again, we see this at Cain and Abel. We ought not be surprised. We should not, and, and this kills me whenever I see Christians doing this, we should not sit back and cry and say, this is so unfair that we're being treated this way. Anyone on Facebook ever? <laughs> right? Do we not see this from a lot of Christians? This is so unfair. The First Amendment rights are being like eroded by different legislation that's passed through. Don't do that. This is to be expected. This is something we're, we're to take on the chin. And I'm not saying like, that there is definitely a political place and for us to fight back in a democracy because by God's grace he's given us a nation that is a democratic nation. We can fight back. But we should not pout and be down and cry out unfair whenever we're persecuted. This is normal. Second thing, if, if we don't consider persecution strange, then we won't be angry when it happens. We won't be angry with our persecutors, right? Just throwing this out there. Whenever you expect something bad to happen to you and then it happens, you're like, well, that sucks. I saw it coming, though. You know, it's whatever. Right? Do we not do that? <laughs> so if we don't consider persecution strange and we're expecting it because the Bible tells us to expect it, then we won't be angry when it actually happens. We won't be angry with our persecutors. We may call it injustice because it is injustice, but we will recognize that the children of Satan are acting naturally. They're doing what comes naturally to them. 2 Corinthians 4 says, If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from the people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. If we expect it, and we understand, like I talked about the new birth, that we're all born into this spiritual darkness and deadness, and on top of our own spiritual death, Satan is so wicked that he will blind those who are already blind and cover the ears of those who are already deaf and try to keep people in the grave who are already dead. They're doing what comes naturally to them. Of course they hate you. Of course they're going to mock you. Of course they're going to call you a fool. They're doing what comes naturally. They are being led along by the devil. They're under His power. And we know that only God can give the new birth. We know only God can change them. That God must do a sovereign act of grace in the people who are persecuting us. What does that tell me? That tells me we should pity them. Not be angry with them. We should be telling them the gospel. Right? The gospel, the power for, like, unto salvation. Right? The only thing that can change them. We should be telling them about Christ and His love for them and the fact that He laid down His life to free them if they will repent and believe. We should be praying for them. Because whenever we pray for someone's salvation, we're saying, God, will you do what is humanly impossible for me and them to do? 
We won't be angry. We will not sit back angrily and hope that they perish because they're doing awful things to us, because they're persecuting us. We will pity them, see their real need, and begin to try to work to make them become friends of God. And in the process, they will become our brothers and sisters. We will not be angry. Thirdly, as we're persecuted in the days to come, we will not repay evil for evil. God help us with this. We will not hate our persecutors. They may be hostile towards us, but God's people love their enemies. God's people bless their enemies. They pray for the ones who hate them, just like the Lord Jesus Christ tells us to do. Just like Jesus did Himself. When the days come that life gets hard because people are making it hard on us because of our faith in Christ, we will not name call. We will not be spiteful towards people. We will not ignore people whenever they're in need. We will be quick to befriend those who hate us. We'll be quick to do good for them as much as we're able. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, Now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. We will do good to those who hate us. Fourth, we will count ourselves, this is hard, we will count ourselves as blessed when we suffer. This is a really, real with the prosperity gospel and all that kind of garbage that's being preached in a lot of churches, this is ridiculous to hear. That we'd be counted as blessed, that we would consider ourselves blessed whenever we suffer for the name of Jesus. But Jesus Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So why will we count ourselves as blessed when we suffer? This hit me like a ton of bricks. I was actually talking to one of our congregants here whenever this hit me on Monday or Tuesday. We will count ourselves as, ourselves as blessed because in the moment that we're experiencing persecution and hatred from the world, we will know that we belong to God. Whenever Satan's people oppose us and oppress us and cause us pain, we will know we belong to God because Satan does not fight his own people. Jesus Christ says, a house divided will not stand. How does that work? Right? One, an army is not going to turn and attack itself. They're going to attack the ones that they view as their enemy. So we can say whenever we're suffering, I know that I belong to Christ. Because Christ suffered as well. So not only do I know that I'm being opposed by Satan because I belong to Jesus, but I'm actually partaking in Jesus' suffering himself. And notice this too, whenever he says, because you are my followers, I always want to make this distinction. When we suffer for Jesus' name, not because you're a loudmouthed, bigoted, arrogant jerk, right? 
Get on Facebook again. Facebook is just, that's just number one for total depravity. If you're not a Calvinist, just throwing that out there. Just get on Facebook for five minutes, right? Like we can see people who say, I'm being persecuted in the name of Jesus. And it's like, no, that person hates you because you're a punk, right? Like, I mean, has anyone else ever read those posts? And like, you just itch to type it on the keyboard. It's like, you're not suffering because you're a Christian. You're suffering because you're being a punk, because you're being a jerk. But when we suffer because we're living our, our faith publicly and we're telling people the gospel, and we're doing good deeds in the name of Jesus. And we're urging people to repent or perish. Whenever we suffer for doing those things, Jesus says at the end of this passage that we join the ranks of a long line of godly people. That we join Abel. We join Noah. We join David. We join Daniel. We join Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. We join Jesus. We join Paul. We join Peter. We join James. We join John. Whenever we suffer, because God's people have always been opposed. So in light of all those things, this is a question for application. If Jesus says, you're blessed when you go through these things, not, not if, but when, and Peter says, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you, and fiery trials in the context of the book of First Peter is suffering. Again, he writes his book to the elect exiles. He's writing to Christians, when you suffer... Let me ask you this. Have you suffered for Christ? Ever? Ever? Anything? Ever? Have you ever been mocked for telling someone the gospel? Has anyone ever asked you a question about a law or a moral issue and you tell them, well, you know, the Bible tells me and I follow Jesus, so Jesus has my opinion for me. And you are reviled for that. People slander you for that. Any, anything. Anything ever happened like that to you before ever? Because if not, maybe you're the exception. Maybe you're the exception to the rule. Even though I don't think Jesus really makes one. Maybe you know something he doesn't. Or maybe you're not living your faith publicly. Right? C- consider this. None of God's people would have ever suffered if they would have kept their faith a secret? Do you think they would have sawed Isaiah in half, the prophet, if he would not have been going around Israel saying, Repent! God doesn't want your sacrifices. He doesn't want your false worship. He wants your heart. He wants you to repent. Do you think that that, that he would have suffered anything if he would have just kept that to himself and said, Well, you know, I've repented. No. Do you think they would have crucified Christ if he wouldn't have told the religious leaders, You don't know God. Your hearts are far from him, even though his name's on your lips. Do you think they would have persecuted Paul if he wouldn't have said, repent or perish? No. None of God's people would have ever suffered if they kept it a secret. And yet, what do we see all throughout the Bible? God's people suffer. Look at Daniel. Think about this. Hey, if you pray to God for the next 30 days, we're going to throw you in a den of lions. Most Christians, like people who claim to be Christians, don't even pray every 30 days. And Daniel says, well, you're going to have to throw me in there, I guess. Because it was public knowledge that Daniel prayed. Or unless you bow down to this statue and worship this king as a god. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to publicly do that. I worship the God of the Bible. Are you living your faith publicly? You know, or are you refusing to take a stand on biblical issues? Are you refusing to tell people the gospel? Are you refusing to live a different life? 
Are you just trying to like get brushed under the rug and try to live as much like the unbelieving people around you as you can? So ask yourself that question. Do I ever suffer for Christ? If the answer is no, ask yourself, why not? But know this, that when we suffer, God sees it. When we suffer, God sees it. And listen to me, He takes it very personally. An assault on God's people is an assault on God Himself. Jesus Christ, whenever he appears to Saul, who later became Paul, in Acts chapter 9, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul is killing and having Christians arrested. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, why are you hurting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Because an attack on them is an attack on me. I so closely identify with my people. If you mess with my kids, you mess with me. God does not take the persecution of his people or himself lightly ever. Notice God says in in chapter 4 of Genesis that we read, he says, Abel's blood cries out for vengeance. And then what else does God tell us throughout the Old Testament? He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God sees and he promises to repay those who persecute his people. Those who stand opposed, first and foremost, to him. He says, I will repay them for this injustice. I will repay them for their rebellion against me. I will repay them for the persecution of my people unless they repent. Because if they repent, then Jesus Christ has suffered God's vengeance on their behalf. But someone will suffer vengeance. This is just yet another reason that we can bear the pain. God sees and he is just and he will see justice through someday. Notice this, that Abel's blood cried out for vengeance, right? But Abel himself died a martyr. Abel himself died faithful. Nowhere in in chapter 4 do we see any hostility from Abel towards his brother, do we not? We see none. Consider this. This was was big for me. I was actually talking to my mother on the phone about this yesterday. Um, Abel went willingly into the field with Cain. Cain knew what he was going to do to his brother. I don't know under what guise. Maybe Cain said, maybe it was, hey, can you come help me in the field because he's a farmer? And Abel, who doesn't count his brother as an enemy, though they are of two different spiritual families, he says, I don't count you as my enemy. Sure, I'll help you in the field. Or maybe he says, hey, Abel, will you come talk with me? And Abel says, maybe I can get him to repent. Either way, Abel goes into the field, no matter what the reason, he, go, he goes into the field innocent with his brother, not viewing his brother as his enemy. Abel points to Christ in this. Abel points to Christ in the fact that Jesus was perfectly faithful to God. Jesus was innocent. Jesus loved those who hated him, right? We see in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Peter chops this dude named Malthus' ear off, who is arresting Jesus, and Jesus heals him. The guy who is arresting him and is going to beat him and hand him over to the Romans. Jesus shows mercy to this guy, who utterly hates him. So Jesus, Abel points to the greater Abel, who is Jesus. Again, perfectly faithful, loves his enemies, but ultimately was murdered by the offspring of the serpent. 
murdered by the enemies of God. But Hebrews 12.24 tells us that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hebrews 12 says this, You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus Christ cries out pardon. It cries out mercy for any who will repent and believe. No matter what they've done. Because on the cross, as Jesus was murdered, he satisfied the wrath of God for all of those who would repent. And he promises pardon and mercy for all who will come to him. His blood speaks a much better word than the blood of Abel. No matter what sins you've committed, no matter how much you've been opposed to God, no matter how much you've persecuted his people, I used to personally try to deconvert people when I was an atheist. I would try to deconvert them from Christianity. I hated Christians. And the blood of Jesus Christ cried out mercy and pardon for me. He cries out the same for all who repent. He doesn't cry out for vengeance against his enemies. He cries out for forgiveness. And God is demanding all to repent and believe on Jesus. Listen, he's not begging you or wanting you to. He is demanding all to repent and believe on Christ and receive pardon, just like he did Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you repent, will I not take you in? But God will have justice and vengeance on all who refuse this mercy. There is no third option, just like he told Cain. Sin is crouching at the door if you will not repent. Which means sin and the punishment for sin is awaiting you, Cain, if you will not repent. Whether you've ever persecuted a believer or not, all are guilty of hostility to God. All need this pardon. And it's guaranteed to those who are going to trust in Christ, who will put their faith in Him, who have been born again by the Spirit of God. So Christians, sum this whole thing up. Do not be afraid, right? Don't be afraid of what may come. I know it's going to be really hard to do because there are a lot of fear-mongering preachers out there who are going to try to make you afraid. But as Stephen's going to read here in a minute in our call to worship, the reward for our suffering will far surpass any pain that we may have to endure here. God says endure for 70, 80, 90 years and I will give you eternity. We can hold fast for that. The reward will outweigh anything we suffer. So when persecution comes, don't be surprised. Don't be angry. Don't seek revenge. But instead, count yourself as blessed, for Jesus himself suffered worse or the same persecution in order to save you. Live openly for Christ in the face of hostility. Hear me. Live openly for Christ in the face of hostility, and you will glorify your Savior. Because as we live this way, pushing through pain, we declare God's victory over the serpent. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for setting your son forward as the one who would bear our sin and bring us peace with you by suffering what we deserve by living the obedient life that none of us can live and then giving it to us. 
God embolden us to live publicly for the faith. Father, help us to be like Christ and that we would love our enemies. Make us eager to do good works. Make us bold for the gospel. Take away any fear that we might have of what the future may come or may bring. But God, like Peter tells us to do, help us entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. God, you're sovereign and we, we, we give you our lives. We trust you with everything that may come against us. Be good to us. We know you will. And even when suffering comes, when persecution comes, may we remain faithful because you will hold us in the truth. It won't be by our strength, but it will be by yours, and you are all-powerful. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.